You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. Hi there, I'm Michael Bennett, the editor of Westpac Wire, and today I'm chatting with Dan Heath, the US best selling author of several books he co wrote with his older brother Chip, the most recent titled The Power of Moments. Now, what does this matter? Well, what it tells us is that when we talk about experience, and especially when we think about crafting experience for other people, what we're really talking about are moments. We're talking about moments, that great experiences hinge on peak moments. That's a YouTube clip of a speech Dan gave in November at a conference in Washington, D.C. about none other than, yep, you guessed it, moments in which he explores, among other things, how all moments, whether they're wedding days or great holidays, have four things in common. Elevation, insight, pride, and connection. But the Heath brothers don't just focus on moments, it's actually their fourth book, following three New York Times bestsellers, Made to Stick, Switch, and Decisive. It gets easier each time, and I think our secret is we're 10 years apart in age, so I'm 44 and he's 54. So, you know, growing up, it wasn't like we were real competitive. You know, if, if, if we'd been playing basketball, he was 17 and I was seven, so he could pretty much win every single game. So we don't have a lot of that sibling rivalry other brothers have. This is just something that uh, it's kind of given us a project to do as adults. You know, like some brothers fix up cars and, and we write business books. Other than public speaking and writing books, Dan's a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Centre, which supports social entrepreneurs. And he previously worked as a researcher at Harvard Business School. His brother Chip is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business on the other side of the US in California. In Sydney this month, I spoke with Dan about the self-help genre, communicating in a world of fake news, and the pressure to write another hit. So Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Is it harder now, do you think, to make things stick? I mean, we're in this world of fake news, social media. Do you think you'd write it differently today than you did 10 years ago? I think the stakes would be higher today for the reasons that you cite. Um, you know, sometimes I, I read about the fake news phenomenon and, and I cringe a little bit because they're using, I mean, I'm not saying they're using the book. They're probably just doing it naturally, but they're using uh, all of the principles we talk about in the book uh, that are responsible for making ideas stick. Uh, Traits like simplicity and emotion and unexpectedness and uh, concreteness, you know, a lot of visual details. And it's sort of like there are these diabolically designed sticky ideas that have done a lot of harm around the world. And so I think, you know, our, our vision for Made to Stick was that it would help teachers and entrepreneurs and business leaders trying to establish a vision. And and now, if we were going to revisit the book, I think we would have to address more the dark side of mm-hmm. the same themes. And I guess thinking more positively, which businesses are sort of making things stick well? I mean, it might be someone in the U.S. in particular. You know, I think any any business that has effective marketing is is making ideas stick I think, to me, what's, what's often more interesting, because advertisers and marketers do a lot of the things we talk about in the book naturally, but I think people who don't do it naturally tend to be executives. You know, the, a lot of ex- executives have never really thought about how do you communicate in a way that 
you don't have to be in the room, that your message can stand on its own legs and that weeks or months after you've communicated with someone, they're able to retell it perfectly to someone else and they have the core of it correct. And, and so I think to me, the book is actually more important for internal communication than it is for external because I think that the, the gap in the quality of communication is, is so much bigger for internal communication that, that often people just don't do these things naturally. Right, okay. Because I was going to ask you if you think there's also a gap at the moment with businesses uh, between what they say publicly. I mean, a lot of businesses talk about customer service, doing the right thing, uh, free markets and all that. But sometimes when, you know, when you get down to the customer level, they don't feel like the message that they're being told is, is, is the one they receive? Always. Uh, yeah, I think that that's always a factor. And that's what makes customers cynical. I mean, I, I don't think many customers are fooled by that sort of thing, that you know, businesses talk a good game about creating these great customer relationships and you know, putting the customers at the center. And then all of the evidence of their behavior suggests otherwise. And, and nobody misses that. So, so my advice to, to companies is always not what's the message that will you know, wallpaper over some of the problems that you're facing, but rather what can you do differently that, that, that is worth noticing and then how can you talk about it? You know, that, that action really is the driver of messages rather than messages being an independent way to solve problems. Yeah, yeah. The, the other thing I noticed when I, before this, interview was um i saw made the stick on a list for business leaders of sort of a top 10 risk uh top 10 books sorry they should read but what, what sort of strikes strikes me about all of your books is is they can kind of be classed as business books or or also sort of about anthropology or the human condition or social sciences is that the way you guys think of them i mean are they business books or are they more about people I, th I hope they're both. You know, they're on the business shelf at the bookstore, but we're very conscious in writing them that we want them to appeal to a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. So every book we're thinking about, is this useful for a business person? Is this useful for a teacher? Is this useful for a parent? Is it useful for a minister? And so we're trying to find a broad enough range of, of stories and principles to apply to people in different walks of life. So that's our goal, at least. Mm. I hope. I hope we're. I hope we're approaching it. And do you guys have a view on on the I guess concept or description of self help books? Obviously, a very big market. There's lots of them. Big business. Um, are you, other books have that element too. I guess. I you know I'm a little bit cynical about self help books. I I think the the majority of them are are not much fun to read and aren't based on particularly strong research, but. But they're gems. I mean, just like anything mm -hmm. else, there are lots of books that, that are uh, just gold mines. I mean, it, I can't think of a better ROI that, anywhere than paying $20 for a really well-crafted self-help book, you know, by Robert Cialdini or Daniel Kahneman, which is probably uh, not fair to call his self-help books, but uh, <laughs> Jim Collins or Morton Hansen or, you know, some of the people who really do great work and, and write interesting books. 
how could you possibly do better than $20 for something that's going to change your business or your life? Mm-hmm. And that sort of brings me to my next point. I mean, you, you, like I said, you guys have the honor of being on some top 10 list that business leaders must read. I mean, what's on your top 10 list? What, what do you sort of um, go home and read at night? Most of my free time, I spend reading novels, to be honest. Uh, but but I do. There there are certain business books I love, and I already mentioned a couple of them. Uh, one of my all time favorites is Influence by Cialdini, just an absolute classic. Uh, I think Getting Things Done by David Allen is another classic mm-hmm. of the genre. Just uh, I defy you to read that book and not change some aspect of your behavior. Uh, and and so there there are lots of gems out there if you just go looking. Mm. And you, you talked about your other books, Switch, earlier. Um, when, when you read, I don't know if you've just got a, quite an impressive bio, but when you read it, and same with your brother Chip, it, it does look like you guys have done quite a few things, quite a few different things, which means you've successfully switched around a bit in your own lives. Uh, how have you done that? I mean, what's, what's, what do you tell people is the success of switching around in their careers in particular? You know, I, I think... When we were researching our book, Decisive, which is about how to make better decisions, I talked to a lot of people about career dilemmas. And one thing that was striking to me is that that people often had a very narrow frame of the situation that they were in. You know, when I would talk to people, they were often articulating the challenge they were facing as, you know, should I quit this job or not, for Mm -hmm. instance. And that's an example of of what psychologists call narrow framing, which, which says that we err when we frame our decisions in terms of a single option, in this case, quitting, and our only real decision is do it or don't do it. And so I think anybody who's, who's kind of in that predicament right now, maybe you're not quite satisfied with your job, my challenge to you is to generate some more options, meaning that until you actually have another job lead, you really don't have a choice to make. So I think uh, recommendation one is, you know, be out there looking, generate another option. But also number two, and this is something I think a lot of people miss, is if you're frustrated enough with your job to think about quitting it, uh, that gives you a lot of leverage to negotiate. You know, mm-hmm. uh, imagine a different version of your current job that might make you happy. You know, what would that look like? Who would you report to? What would your duties be? And why not pitch that before you walk out the door? Because even if they say no, it, it, it doesn't leave you any worse off than you were before. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the more that we can escape the narrow frame, the, the, the better our potential outcomes will be. Mm. And that almost sounds like a big moment in someone's life. So mm-hmm. mo- moving on to the most recent book, um, The Power Moments, it, it feels from an outsider to be another slight pivot. I mean, not completely different to the previous books but but a little bit I mean was it for you guys I mean I guess changed over the years you you're a bit older things have happened in your lives I mean was it do you feel like it is a bit of a pivot for you guys I think it was it was a more difficult birthing process than our previous books like we we actually had a moment for this moment's book it was uh, Christmas time we were brainstorming in our dad's office in Durham, North Carolina. And we were actually talking about a different book. We'd been working on a different book idea for about six months, but we didn't have a whole lot of energy for it. I remember this discussion. It was, it was kind of like we were just slogging through, um, which is not a good sign early in a project. And at some point, neither one of us can recall exactly how the, the concept of defining moments came up, but just that phrase just triggered this 
kind of crazy brainstorming session. We started talking about, um, you know, defining moments in people's lives and defining moments in politics and defining moments in business and, you know, the Olympic medal ceremony. And uh, my brother had heard that BMW audio engineers rigged it so that the ignition moment, that vroom, sounds especially meaty and muscular for, for drivers and on and on and on. And we talked about some of the research beds uh, that inform the design of moments. And it was like two hours later, we kind of came up for air. We walked out into the living room where our family was, was hanging out. And we said, we got a new book idea. And there was this kind of palpable sense of relief on their faces because they had all hated the previous book idea but hadn't gotten around to telling us. And that's obviously not one of the ones you, you wrote. Um, what, what was the book idea they didn't like? You know, I'm not ready to share that because I'm kind of superstitious <laughs> about it. I think that, you know, maybe there's some way to reinvent or mold it that might be book number five. Right. So maybe some tension, a bit where you and Chip maybe didn't perfectly agree on that idea. Well, I think we were both in agreement that it wasn't much fun. So <laughs> <laughs> however it resurfaces, we'll need to be in some new guys. Take us back in time then. I mean, is this something you guys are always sort of sought out to do? I mean, I know you've both been worked in academia, and did, but did you always think you'd become an author and, and sort of writing books together? Not in the least, no. It was a, it was a stroke of serendipity, really, that, uh, gosh, back in probably 2005 or 2006, my brother, who's a professor at Stanford Business School, I had been working on some research related to uh, the marketplace of ideas and why some ideas succeed. And in particular, he was studying urban legends and why it is that urban legends travel so effortlessly, even though there's no team behind them, there's no money behind them, they just kind of spread in viral fashion. And he'd written a paper about some of his research on urban legends and an editor at uh, Random House named Ben Lennon came across it and called him up and said, hey, this is interesting stuff. You know, is there more here? Could you get a book out of this? And then later Chip called me up and said, hey, you know, do you think we could get a book out of this? Because between the two of us, he's more of the researcher and I'm more of the writer. And my attitude was, if Random House is asking, the answer is yes. So, so that was our accidental uh, entry point into the world of, of business books. And, and we've been going ever since. And so of the books, I mean, if we go back 10 years or so now, Made to Stick, uh, that was when you were, what's 33, 34? Mm-hmm. So I've, is, is it sort of characterized as your biggest hit? I mean, I've, I think I've heard it being described as a modern masterpiece. It's obviously a bestseller. Wow. Yeah. I, I want to meet that person. That, that's what I found <laughs> when you do research on the internet. But uh, is that right? I mean, is it kind of like a, a band, you know, if you come out with your first hit, is it all you always kind of... Um, Are you always downhill from there? Yeah, you're trying to repeat it sort of thing. Well, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Our, our second book called Switch, which is about change, has actually been our, our bestseller of the four. Uh, and this new book called The Power of Moments, it's only been out for six months. And, and so far, it's, it, it's outselling any of them but Switch. So... Uh, so, so far we haven't just been, you know, playing, playing the old hits, uh, <laughs> with any luck, we won't be resigned to that fate. Did the power of moments, I think you mentioned, you know, it might've been a, a longer duration. Did it, the actual writing, did it take longer than the others? I mean, how, how, how it was pretty, pretty comparable or? really. Um, we're, we're typically on a three year cycle and this one took four and a half. Yeah. Uh, but that was mostly because we'd had a couple of false starts. We would start new books and then decide... Uh, you know, we don't really want to give three or four years of our life to this, and so we'd move on. And, and for our first three books, we just, 
kind of luckily stumbled into whatever topic fascinated us next. We never, you know, deliberated about it very much, but this one was a little bit more of a struggle. Mm. And so I guess in Australia, but also globally, things like Wells Fargo, um, banks here are also having trust issues. Do you think companies can, I guess, repair, well, not completely, but they can go a long way to repairing that by but getting better at creating moments. I mean, do you think that can play on this trust issue? Yeah, no question. I, I think, uh, you know, what we were saying earlier about the best way to change perceptions is to do something different and then talk about what you've done rather than just, you know, worry about crafting a, a fancy message. And I look at some of what Westpac has done as being consistent with that, like the, uh, the change in eliminating sales incentives for, you know, for tellers to be pitching you other things, for instance. I think that's a really concrete, meaningful example that goes to reestablish trust with customers. And it's worth talking about. It's worth crowing about that because that, that means something. And so I think anybody that's in a situation where they have strained trust should be asking not what are the right words, but what are the actions that would restore people's faith and how do we make sure they know about it? Mm-hmm. And the, I guess, can quickly talk about mediums because I saw you actually launched your own podcast um, recently, which I had to listen to. And um, I, I just wonder if you, how do you think about them differently, say a podcast versus a book? Obviously, completely different in terms of how long they take. But are you finding uh, with your podcast, I think you've done three now, mm-hmm. um, is it as powerful? Does the medium work as well as a book? I, I would leave that up to the, the listeners or readers to comment, but this podcast is called Choiceology, it's, it, it's very similar in domain to our book, Decisive. It's about decision-making. It's about some of the fallacies and biases that we're all prone to. But what's been really fun for me is, you know, if you're a writer, like Chip and I, if we don't do something, nothing happens. You know, the, the team is us. And with this podcast, I mean, there's a whole team of people involved. There's somebody that's a showrunner and there's a, you know, people are good at mixing audio and there are people chasing stories. And, and so I'm just a role player in effect. And so it's really fun for me when I get to hear, you know, the rough cuts of the episodes. Like, I feel like I, it's as if somebody's written a chapter of a book uh, for, for me and I'm having the, the pleasure of, of reading or in this case, listening to it. So it, the production value of, of a podcast is something that's been really fun for me and, and fun to be part of a team doing that. And I did like the recent one on the big impact from small changes. And, and it talks about the difference in decision making between reflective and just automatic. And it got me thinking if the end goal for companies is to sort of be on the automatic sort of stream of decision making. So, you know, a classic example might be Google where it's just automatic for people go, you know, I'm going straight to Google. Is, do you see that as, as part of what companies need to go for these days? I think what people are catching on to, and, and a lot of these ideas, by the way, are drawn from another great self-help book called Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Dick Thaler, um, is that there's a lot of power in defaults, default options. There, there's a study that they cite of the organ donation rate in Austria is 90% and in Germany it's 10%. And so, you know, are there vast cultural differences that explain that discrepancy? And the answer is no. In Austria, you're opted in by default and Mm -hmm. you can opt out if you like, and it's the reverse in Germany. 
And in the U.S., our, our retirement system is a real mess, I mean, especially compared to yours, which I think is the envy of the world. Mm-hmm. But, but in the U.S., it's like it's all on the employee. A lot of the retirement programs are, are set up through the employer. They're called 401k. And so to have any money for retirement, the employee has to put something into that account. And sometimes, not always, employers will match that. And so if you care about your employee's retirement security, again, you try to get those defaults in your favor. So employees are defaulted into the 401k. They're defaulted into an increasing amount every year. So maybe it's 3% of their paycheck the first year and 4% the next year. And they're also defaulted into uh, a portfolio, you know, based on their retirement date that kind of auto allocates their a portfolio between stocks and bonds based on their age and their risk tolerance. And so that's a great example of how they still have all the power. They can change any of those things they want to, but just by being kind of enlightened and, and showing some forethought and how you set up the defaults, the actual differences in outcomes are stark. I mean, vastly more savings in the accounts that are set up with those defaults. And so I think any business owner can learn from that, that uh, it, it's not to say that you need to be making decisions for your employees, but if you can be thoughtful about what the most enlightened defaults are while still giving them the power to change that, it can still make a, a vast difference. Mm, yeah, I, I get the uh, the concept of nudging, uh, very powerful. But I, just the, the platform example, it strikes me as Google, Amazon, Facebook, they're all just things people, they don't reflect on when they're making that decision. They just... That's automatic. That's where they go. And it just made me wonder if financial services companies, that is, you know, the, the uh, ultimate. Yeah, I, I would think so. Uh, you're right, though. I, I can't think of a good analogy in the financial services sector for that. You know, someone that you is your automatic go to when you have a financial dilemma or a need for a financial service. It's very splintered, mm. you know, versus the Google scenario or the Facebook and just lastly, um, back on podcast because I'm interested in giving uh, the um, made to stick is the how you're finding them because there are millions of them. They're free. So how do you make a podcast stick in 2018 and get your message across? Or are they just something you do in between writing books? Yeah, I, I think I you know I'm only three episodes into Choiceology, so it's not as though I, I have a lot of wisdom to to pass down. But but as a listener of podcast, I think it's the same thing that makes books work, and that's the stories are the center. Um, you know, with some of the decision making research we cover on our show, there's probably you know a hundred people in the world who are really uh, ravenously consuming the journal articles that these things are drawn from. It's just a very specialized audience. But if you can find a story that captures, you know, the, the problems of, of confirmation bias, for instance, or the problems of narrow framing, we've had stories about, you know, life or death matters on mountain climbing expeditions and, um, an attempt to reverse, uh, gang violence by, by painting pictures on uh, window shutters. And, and the stories can carry those messages in a, in a much more powerful way. The stories are what people remember. The stories are what people keep people turning the pages or, or listening minute after minute in their, in their headphones. And I think there's a lesson to, in that for, for any communicator is people's appetite is for stories. And what are the stories we can tell as communicators that, that carry the messages we think are important? Well, Dan, on, on that note, you've given an hour and a half speech. Then you've given and straight backed it up with a podcast. So 
we'll let you go get some sleep and get over the jet lag thanks thanks so much it's been fun that's all from us today at westpac wire for more head to westpacwire.com.au thanks for listening